Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now. <laughs> so very good. Thank you, everybody, again, for tuning in to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast. And if you're watching this on a video on YouTube, then, you know, hello there. And uh, it, for those of you that are listening to this, know that in the show notes is a link to the video if you want to go and watch Skip, my guest today, talk about our topic. And so um, as many of you that have listened to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast and know me, Karen Rand, as the host of that, you know that one of my core philosophies and points and purpose for doing the Compassionate Capitalist podcast and even starting the Compassionate Capitalist movement is to facilitate this kind of a conversation that says any community has the ability to grow their job base for a much more stable economy within their community by helping individuals know how they can participate in helping entrepreneurs succeed, whether they're at a startup stage or a growth stage, that if we come together as a community and the leaders in our community will um, embrace this idea of putting private capital to work and helping entrepreneurs grow, then you can have a thriving economy that's based on not only innovation coming to the market and the job creation that comes with that and the wealth creation that comes with that, but also the growth of and the stability of those companies that go from startup and grow and stay within the community as they grow because there is this source of additional capital. So my guest today is Kyle Skip Boudreaux. Skip is the founder and principal of Acadian Capital Research, ACR. ACR provides non-biased deal flow, deal sourcing, filtering, due diligence, and research to its accredited investor clients. In particular, ACR provides services and manages the operations and deal flow of the Acadian Angel Network in Lafayette, Louisiana. Skip is also the founder and managing director of Acadian Capital Ventures. It's a seed stage venture capital firm also based in Lafayette. And Acadian Capital Ventures, which is the website is acadian.vc, provides access to professional and institutional venture capital for investors and companies in locations that are often overlooked by conventional venture capital. So what you're going to learn today is these, the motivations and the means that community leaders, in this case in Lafayette, Louisiana, have used to positively drive economic development and growth of entrepreneurism and small businesses in their community. I was introduced to Skip by a fellow angel investor, Barry Etra, that manages the Coretzu Angel Network and Rise Network in Atlanta. And there's a podcast of my interview with Barry about the angel groups in the Southeast and how they are responding to this pandemic. And if you are a subscriber on any of these platforms to the show, you can go find it on April 14th. It's the state of angel investing in the midst of COVID-19. So, you know, I'm always curious about this launch of angel networks in places that aren't obvious hotbeds of innovation and wealth. It's the very thing I encourage as I speak on economic development 
an entrepreneur angel investor ecosystems. And so I was fascinated by the work and passion that Skip shared with me and really shouldn't, ha shouldn't have been surprised to find out that in 2019 and, two and 2020, Skip was named one of the 100 most influential people in Louisiana startup scene by the Silicon Bio News. He's a lifelong Lafayette resident and graduate from the University of Louisiana Lafayette with a master's in business administration and a bachelor's degree in electrical and computer engineering. Skip's portfolio includes such companies as Waiter, and that's W-A-I-T-R, Digital Twin Studios, Solarius, Solarius Pharmaceuticals, Something Borrowed Bloom, Grip-On, and you know it just goes on and on. It's re really a diversified portfolio, and uh, just really with that, let's get to it and welcome Skip to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast. Welcome, Skip. Thank you for being with me. Here. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Thank you. So what did I what did I miss in your journey? I think I missed some of your entrepreneurism part because when you came out of school, there was a there's a segment in there where yeah. you learned the, the real world of starting a company, growing companies, all that kind of stuff. So talk about that and kind of connect the dots of how you went from academia or early on in your entrepreneur roots to being this leader within the capital space uh, in Lafayette. Yeah, so uh, back in, oh man, we'll call it 2009 maybe, uh, I graduated electrical computer engineering. Uh, I was writing software for, uh, chiropractic firms. Actually, I worked for a firm that wrote software for chiropractic firms. Interesting. And my neighbor had this really interesting company called Fuzzy Buns, which is a reusable washable cloth diaper company. Um, she started it. She was a rock star. Started it um, uh, in New Iberia here near Lafayette and Acadiana. Uh, took it all the way up. I think at the height we had $4.3 million in sales. Uh, of cloth diapers. And um, so I, I moved over, I'm kind of making the story quick, but I moved over to help her with her database programming uh, while I was getting my MBA. And then, uh, you know, we were shifting over manufacturing. We moved it from China to Turkey uh, due to some um, uh, intellectual property issues, whatnot. Uh, and then uh, what really kind of got me started on this journey is she was called up by. Shark Tank, and this is early Shark Tank, like season three. <laughs> uh, and they said, you know, I think what ended up happening is there was another cloth diaper company that applied. They did their research and they realized that, you know, Fuzzy Buns was the, the original, uh, you know, pocket diaper, one size fits all. So uh, she goes on the Shark Tank. Um, you can pull it off. She's a rock star. Um, but they beat her up pretty bad. Um, what you don't see on Shark Tank is that. You know, they show you 10 minutes, but it's really an hour, hour 30, you know, of negotiation and back and forth. And they, they make it for TV. Right. So they'll say things like, hey, look, if they cry, you know, let them cry. Right. <laughs> like, like, you know, ask her about her mom type of stuff. You know, oh, to try to wow. Um, but they, they, they beat her up really bad. Um, and so whenever she came back, uh, she put me in charge of the company uh, uh, along with my sister. And uh, our job at that point was, okay, let's try to get this company back on the, on the right track. So um, we started moving manufacturing back from Turkey to China, standardizing patterns and, and whatnot. Um, but meanwhile, even if you don't get a deal on Shark Tank, 
once it airs, your phone blows up, right? right. So I'm sitting there, you know, I'm 23 or something at the time, getting calls from, you know, hello, this is so-and-so from Boston Investment Group, you know, or just a bunch of places. And, uh, you know, are y'all, y'all still looking at investment? Sure, yeah, we are. And so then I had to start doing due diligence from the sell side. I had to Google what due diligence was, right? <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, but I got bit by the bug and eventually she ended up uh, getting investors here locally in Lafayette that came in. Um, but, but by that point, I, I knew what I wanted to do. So uh, I stepped out of the company, um, still continued to help, uh, you know, consulting. And I called the largest investing firm uh, in the area uh, and effectively said, you know, hey, you don't know me. My name's Skip, but I want a job. And they said, yeah, if you could pass all the tests, you, you have a job. Um, so that's how I got into the finance side of it. Um, and then, you know, I, I was like, all right, I'm ready to look at companies, analyze companies, let's invest in companies, you know, let's manage some money. And whenever you get into that business, you know, the, the first thing they say is, okay, go find money to manage. I was like, ah, <laughs> shoot, <laughs> like I'm not much of a salesman. Um, but, but I have this really good analytical mind of, 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 you know, uh, analyzing companies and whatnot. Uh, Andrew has been, you know, just so good to me. Andrew Aarons is the, the investor I work for. Um, and so he kind of took me under his wing and started looking at his private deals, uh, you know, deals that he'd do on his own. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of, oh, Marucci Bats just exited. That was one of the earlier deals that he did. Several, I mean, from breweries to, I tell people we have um, everything from pharmaceutical companies to, to, pet costumes, right? Uh, <laughs> but we were starting to look for uh, more deal flow uh, because now that I had the bandwidth to help him with the deal flow. And so we stumbled across these things called angel networks. Well, I found there's an angel network out of New Orleans called No Land, which is pretty large. They have over a hundred members. Uh, it's ran by a guy named Mike Eckert, who is just, once again, uh, anyone in the angel space probably knows Mike. He started- uh, in Chicago, uh, started angel group over there. He was CEO of weather channel, uh, in Atlanta, started a huge angel group over there. Well, yeah, he ran, he ran Atlanta technology angels here for a few years. He took over after, um, some of the, um, I just blank on the, the other guy's name, but yeah. Everywhere he goes, he, he pops up these huge, strong angel networks and he's just like, an incredible mentor. I, I, I could go on and on about Mike, but uh, we reached out to them and we said, Hey, look, we're looking for deal flow. We heard you have an angel network, you know, so let's see what we can do. And they said, Oh, well, if you're interested in an angel network, there's some guys in Lafayette who are starting one. Oh. And, and so that's how it started. We started actually underneath no land. So we would utilize their deal flow, their process and everything. We were kind of like a satellite angel group. We ran like that for a year and a half, two years, and then we spun off and we became our own freestanding uh, angel group. Okay. Well, that's good because I had down as my question was, you know, how did you come to launch your own group? So, so, cause it's always sort of like the, the chicken and the egg. So let me ask you yeah. this. How, uh, so you had a small group that was wanting to do this, that you found, and then you came yep. forward as sort of this subset of, of the New Orleans group. Mm -hmm. And then we, how did it, how did it morph from there to be on your own? Was it um, a lot of convincing people that they should 
like what I struggle with is that, you know, it's not, not just real estate, but you can also invest in this. Or was it a lot of people that had had success had been entrepreneurs that say, Hey, I've just been waiting for an angel group to come here and, you know, build it and they will come and they did come, you know, was, or was it a little bit of both? Yeah. So early on in the, in the recruiting of the angel process, the original guys uh, who were getting together already kind of had their group, right? So they've been doing deals for years. It just was kind of, uh, we call them country club deals, you know, just sure. they keep it in their circle of friends. And, um, and, and so they knew a lot of other credit investors and kind of pulled them together. Um, because you were getting structure to it and there's a, a certain amount of peace of mind when you have a lot of other investors that can keep deals going and can help with the due diligence process. That's exactly how NBA and I, the group I took over and ran for about 15 years, um, got started. It was you know, four guys sitting around a table at a Denny's, you know, kind of. A yep. And you, you layer on top of it, hey, we can now get you a whole bunch more deal flow because mm -hmm. we're connected with New Orleans. Yeah, so you and get to then, see better deals that, and such. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then now it's not only we're connected with New Orleans, it's we're connected with angel groups all across the U.S., right? So, you know, Barry, for example, and, and the Southeast Regional has its own syndication network uh, efforts. And then you have life sciences all over the U.S. and, uh, you know, women-only investors and impact investors. There's just, there's so much syndication and deal flow out there that if you're only doing the, the country club deals that you see in your area, uh, you know, you lose a lot of that. Uh, diversity, geographical diversity, uh, industry diversity, um, you know, founder diversity. Yeah. So now how are you, so, so independent of this anomaly of a pandemic, okay, when, you know, leading into this, say, come March, you know, and you are working through your plans at the end of last year on what the goals of the organization were and, and, Talk about the mix of how you keep some money local, how you diversify and have some money that may not be as local, but you're you're following on the investment that's being led by another local group like that. Talk about that mix of where you were at the end of 2019 and what you were expecting to have happen in 2020, and then we can talk about where you are now. Yeah, yeah. So I think the 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 dynamic between local deals versus syndicated deals that come in is super interesting, right? So for, for an economic development standpoint, you want uh, your local deals, you know, if you want to be kind of selfish, but you want your local deals to have money that comes from outside and comes into your community. Right. And whether or not the company is successful and has a big exit, it still has a big impact on your community because one, you have money coming in that's paying salaries here, Right your community is getting paid effectively to level up their skill set and go through these processes. And you know what? It might just actually win and succeed as a company, which then has its own, you know, effects of, uh, uh, you know, founders, co-founders having money branching off, starting other, uh, you know, other startups. Um, uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, we were looking at it. Uh, we don't really look at it as a, um, internal uh, Lafayette type of thing uh, versus external. We, we generally look for the companies with the best ROI. But what we say is that like, look, we, we would love to invest 100% in companies that are local, right? Either Lafayette or, or Louisiana. But unfortunately the case is 
in order to provide an ROI to our investors, we have to look outside. There's just not as much critical mass, um, you know, as there is other places. So sure. if you look at Louisiana as a whole, we have, you know, four, 4.5 million people, you know, the Bay Area has about eight, right? So we're like, as a state, we are half the, the size of Bear. So, you know, just from a number standpoint, we're not gonna be able to build a portfolio that way. But what we are driving towards is I don't want access to capital be the reason why the successful companies or the, the founders who would start those companies, I don't want them to leave and go places where capital is more efficient because they find that, oh, we don't have access to capital. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, that, so, so what is the population of Lafayette? Lafayette uh, City is about 140,000, I believe. Okay. And then the surrounding area is about 250. Okay. And then New Orleans population, what, a million, two million? Uh, it, no, it's got to be like a half a million, 700,000. Oh. Okay. There's, uh, there's an exodus after Katrina, and a lot of those okay. uh, you know, talented people went over to Houston. Some of them made it back, some haven't. Um, but New Orleans has had quite the, um, the, the bit of growth in the past few years, too. Yeah. Okay, so, that, so that's interesting because I want to encourage people that are listening to the show that says, you know, because we've gone through this stigma in Atlanta quite a bit. And, like, we actually went through a, a, thing, <laughs> a period where we would wear buttons that had uh, SV with a slash through them. We're not Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. We were like trying to cheerlead us on that we could have a, this thriving, instead of having this chip on our shoulder, that we're not, you know, Silicon Valley and people won't invest and it's everybody is real estate and you know, all this kind of stuff. We were trying to break free of that and say, well, let's just see what we can do within our own community. And of course, Atlanta proper, when you pull in the 13 counties that kind of make up the extended Atlanta area, we have 4 million people. And so, you know, and, and still, even with those numbers, we go like, why are there more investors? We have probably less than 1% of that 4 million, huh. you know, that are, you know, actively involved in angel investing, you know, sure. I mean, there's yeah. probably there's hundreds, not thousands. Is what yeah, yeah, yeah. Point, right. And so I always want to encourage people like if I use Georgia as my example, Augusta, for example, or, you know, Savannah, Savannah has a small, not quite as active lately angel group there, mm -hmm. but there's no reason why they can't learn from a Lafayette and say, this is what you can do within your own community. When you look at when those the companies I named off that were, so your profile, are they all pretty much local in Louisiana? Are the ones that you, that, that I named well, that initial thing? Most of them. Yeah. Solarius yeah. is out of Texas, but Waiter, Waiter was one that uh, started here. Lake Charles moved over here in Lafayette. They exited IPO with 300 million by Tillman Fertitta bottom out you know that, that makes a little money to for the community to be you know wealth creating and and then you know part of you know yes compassion on the capitalist side capitalist side is making money the compassion side it says i'm going to choose to not just buy sell and make money i'm going to invest in these entrepreneurs and their passion right to bring that innovation market create those jobs right and 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 impact my community but then when you get that kind of wealth what else can you do that's in the 
pure philanthropic? And what can you do to invest in the schools there and all the other things that we address in our community, you know, because you have that kind of wealth that gets created in a community, then it has an overall ripple effect across the board, whether it's in entrepreneurism or not. So that's oh, yeah. You can that's you awesome. can a hundred percent be, like you said, a compassionate uh compassion capitalist. So so for example, we have a, a through the uh, research firm, we have a client, they're a, a family foundation who wants to give back in education and underrepresented uh, demographics, right? So what we do is we just kind of keep an eye out. We're constantly looking at deals. And when we find a deal and a company that uh, its mission or uh, through what they do helps underrepresented populations uh, in the education space, we bring it to them. And so whenever they look at it, they say, well, we can actually make a return on this, right? But we can make an, an economic impact as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, we have a company now in our portfolio who, who does that. It's a really good company based out of Louisiana. Um, and, and they help, uh, you know, underrepresented, under-resourced students, uh, you know, increase their test scores so they can go to college and, you know, achieve higher uh, attainment. So, yeah. like, you can, you can 100% make money and do good. Yeah. So now within Louisiana, you mentioned NOLA and, you know, we have Acadian. Is there another, is are there, are there other, they are other angel groups, right? So how many angel groups would you say that, you know, not the country club ones, but that are sort of structured are exist in Louisiana? So, uh, so I know them all and we have a very close relationship, right? So we look at it as like, it's, it's not a zero sum game. So we work really well together. So you have, uh, you know, New Orleans, uh, you have us in Lafayette, uh, up you have Dave Smith and them in Shreveport. Uh, then you have uh, Ron in Lake Charles. And then now, recently, what we have is Baton Rouge. You think, why wouldn't Baton Rouge have an angel group? They've tried maybe four or five times to spring one together, and um, they haven't been able to pull it off. But they keep trying. And, like, so they're doing the same thing we did several years ago so they're now underneath new orleans oh sure. uh, getting the deal for, because that models work and so mm-hmm. um you know so you have the red stick angels and uh i know they did at least one deal this year and they're they're doing well yeah so that's great so so now when you guys look at these deals and you're syndicating them do you um have like a monthly call that you do or do you have some kind of central you know, privately accessed uh, platform where deals that you've looked at that are going through various stages of due diligence or you've made an investment or somebody else's investment, they can just go there as a syndicate of, of Louisiana, so to speak. So is it formalized yet or is it still sort of informal conference calls kind of a thing to share the knowledge about deals that you're looking at? Yeah, no, this is, this is super interesting. So, uh, and it's different levels of formality, right? So uh, Louisiana is still very informal, right? So I'll pick up the phone, call Mike, you know, uh, once a month or every other month, and we'll just kind of chat and, and see. Uh, you know, same with Dave and them up there. We'll get a sense of, hey, you guys working on anything interesting? And, and we just kind of um, connect that way. We tried to set up a call that was every other month, um, but that just kind of fell off and didn't really work. But whenever you take Louisiana and then you step it up to the Southeast Regional, Southeast Regional has a monthly syndication call. Um, you put it for your companies. It's kind of uh, quarterbacked by the ACA. Um, 
And then we also on top of it have a uh, operators call every month uh, or every other month uh, through the Southeast regional. So kind of what Barry was referencing is we all got together and said, how do we help our portfolio companies during COVID? It's, it's a more um, intimate group because it's your region rather than kind of getting lost in the noise of all the ACA. Yeah. And then whenever you take it step higher national syndication, the ACA is really kind of putting the lead on it. Ron, uh, a task force they actually broke them up into three task force about how do we standardize companies and what information is important to gather and, and put into uh, you know some sort of database because everyone's looking for different things. Well, you know, uh, do you log if it's a minority woman-owned business? Yes, you do because there are companies that they don't look at company they don't look at companies that aren't right because that's their their directive. Do you put that they are a, uh, you know, a, um, a, a consumer packaged good type company? Yes, you do, because there are some companies who don't touch that. Um, and, and so it's, it's. I, I guess my point is, it's, it's getting more formal at the top, and then as you go down, it's less and it's, it's more relationship based. Well, that's also encouraging for really anybody anywhere that might be wanting to start up whether, you know, most major cities have one or two or multiple, um, you know, angel groups, but the outlying areas that may have, you know, a, 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 a think tank, if you will, because of what is created by having a university in their community. Uh, and so the fact that there is this somewhat of a structure and a lifeline, if you will, whether it's coming from at a local level, but then also to the, to, to that start to the full level, because, you know, I know we can talk, we'll talk now more about your research firm because the due diligence process is one of the most um, confusing. I don't know what I don't know, you know, piece of the process of making a decision about investing in a company. And, you know, when I wrote in my book, I have, um, you know, the, this big due diligence checklist that you get through the resource portal for the investors that, you know, sign up for the resource portal, you know, along with their, you know, their scoring system for how they score a deal based on their own personal preferences of industry and stage and offering type. And so, the, you know, but the due diligence thing, it doesn't always really apply to every company, depending on the stage they are or where they are in that process. And, I interviewed um, a gentleman the other day, uh, also Kyle, I think his name is, and uh, it, his segment will go live, uh, I think might be next week, and it's about a due diligence tool that um, has been invested in out of Atlanta by the, um, uh, it, it was sort of co-developed in conjunction with the, the tech stars that's in Atlanta, and the and the Atlanta Technology Angels, so they're all sort of. It just went live like within the last couple of weeks, huh. and um, as a due diligence portal that these organizations can use and entrepreneurs can use because they have multiple different investor groups coming to them, and so they they start with sort of like this laundry list of things that they can should have, and then if they don't have it, and this is kind of what I advise companies on you may not have this piece of information. Like for example, if you're a startup, you're not going to have audited financials. It makes no sense to have audited financials. Um, and you may not even have, you're a SaaS program. You may not even have 
an actual customer customers yet. Even if you're in a pre-launch stage, you got your MVP, you got the stuff. But what you should have is a framework of what your online customer agreement will look like. You know, because everybody, we take it for granted. Every time you sign up for any application that's online, there's something that you've got to click that says you agree to the terms and conditions of that agreement. So if you as a startup and me as an investor, you know, oh, they can get around to it, but I would like to know as an investor that they realize they have to have something like that and, you know, go, you know, beg, bar and steal and get, get stuff from other companies that have done it. And some of these incubators and places probably have samples. And then when you get the funding, you're going to go run it through a legal council that's going to dot the I's and cross the T's, but at least know that you are going to need that and you have that, right? And so there's all these different levels of stuff and it's a lot of it becomes where investors just are comfortable that this entrepreneur knows that they don't know some things, are coachable to be able to get those things and are working towards this operationally that they're going to be in business as a real company and beyond this idea stage because there's these trappings of what you have to have as a real company, right? And so um, I'll send that information over to you and I'm sorry, I don't have it off the top of my head. I just thought of it that I should, I should have had that and been prepared to share that with you, but um, I'll send that over to you so you can, and when that link comes live, you can look at it and it may be a tool that, you know, you yourself might adopt as part of what you use as your, with your research group. So, so now address what your practices are and how you go about screening the companies, doing this research because your clients are these angel investor groups and these family offices that you're looking for these deals and to have vetted them. So sort of what are your best practices for doing that kind of due diligence and preparation? Yeah. So we, we have a policy now that, you know, we, we look at everything, right. And so because our thesis is, you know, saying that there are diamonds out there that are overlooked by traditional venture capital, we look at everything. Um, to your point, it's kind of like, you don't know what you don't know. There are a lot of companies out there who, you know, they, they are, and founders, they, they feel like they, uh, like I have it all figured out. It's this. And, and we've seen so many of them and I can almost tell them like, look, you're going down the road with a lot of dead bodies and a lot <laughs> of dead cash, you know what I mean? And like, uh, and, but, but the way that we go about it is because we operate in areas that aren't as robust, right. In frameworks and knowledge and, and the secondhand knowledge as you know, you're the, the West coast or, or it, we try to help people learn what they don't know, you know? And right. so I'll tell them, look, I've seen this before. Uh, it's paid with dead bodies, dead money. This is what kills companies the most going down this, right? So how have you solved this, right? Or how do you plan on solving that? Like start thinking about that because if you can make it through this hurdle, you have a shot. Can you give us an example? Maybe don't name the name of the company, but sort of like in practice, what that looked like of a company that you needed to help pivot. So, so in practice, um, uh, these kind of like SOMO, like social mobile, local type of apps, right. Where, um, you want to, uh, give the same convenience as shopping on Amazon or online to retail companies here locally, uh, it usually stems from someone who has some connection with, with brick and mortar saying, you know, we gotta, we gotta save them. The the problem the what makes it tough is that, uh, in order to make it work, you have, uh, you have to either have user adoption on the app side, 
uh, for them to get on the platform. Because uh, getting getting the, the retailers usually isn't that difficult, right? You have to have user adoption to get them to have the app to go forward and, uh, you know, think, okay, well, I want to buy that dress from this boutique, right? And then you have another issue of how do you standardize the inventory across all of your brick and mortars, right? To make sure that whenever it, it pulls up the dress, it's in stock. Um, but the biggest issue is trying to convince someone else to download another app, right? And so you go, okay, well, I can, I can make one big marketplace so they can come on. It's just really tough. And you got to go and, and grind it out in the, in the hand-to-hand combat guerrilla warfare. And it's, I think it's a problem we're solving right? It's just, it's littered with dead bodies and dead cash, you know? Um, and so some people may have a hack of, uh, of getting those users and, um, the, the last company had one that, that they think will work well. Um, but it's, it's just tough, you know, and that's one where whenever we see them though, back, back to the point with the diligence, whenever we see them, we try to impart some sort of wisdom. We usually don't just say no, bye. You know, we usually say no buying. This is why, right? This is how we're thinking of it. Yeah. Another thing we do is we try to be super courteous in the sense of we'll tell entrepreneurs, we'll say, look, we'll either give you uh, uh, a quick no, right? Uh, or we're going to work you through our process, right? Because we figure a quick no is better than a long maybe. Yes, 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 yes. And so, you know, you know we have to raise money uh, for the fund, you know, as well. So, we sympathize what it's like to raise money. And mm-hmm. if we can treat our entrepreneurs with respect and look, you may get a no from us, right? But it's going to be a, a very quick no because we know what we want, or it's going to be a no with some sort of um, uh, actionable intelligence to make you better. Right. Uh, but, but that's kind of how we think about it from a, a from an entrepreneur relationship standpoint. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm taking a long way around as far as diligence process. You know, that's our bread and butter. So, uh, you know, I come from my engineering background. So what we did is we don't have everything checked, like checkboxed, right? And there, there's no real um, checklist, right? But what we have is we have a, a structured process where if you follow the process, you're going to hit everything that you need. Um, and we break those out between, you know, technical risk, market risk, uh, you know, product risk, uh, reputation, you kind of all the way through and of those breaks out into different things that we should ask and look into. Um, and there's always going to be warts on companies. The idea is we just want to get a sense of what are the risks of the company, right? Or of the market, right? Do the entrepreneurs know that these risks exist, right? And if they do, we want to get a sense of how they thought about it and how they mitigated the risk or plan to mitigate the risk. And that's, that's really all it is. So whenever we deliver our, our diligence reports back to our, our investors, it's not a, Hey, do this investment, right. Or don't do this investment. It's a, these are all the, uh, the risks that we found, right. Mm-hmm. These are the ones that are more severe, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and then how do you weigh that against, uh, the valuation and the potential uh, upside in the market, right? Yeah, because right. because you're making asynchronous bets, um, and so they're not always going to be, you know, perfect treasury bills. You know, <laughs> yeah, risk. right. Well, and it's it's um, one of the things that I try to educate investors on in the book, and when I do workshops on this, is that you know you have this subjective element. And an objective element, right? So the so and they overlap, 
in that people that are in the business of, of investing, that are these sophisticated investors that are part of these groups, they have an objective goal and, and criteria. But then when it comes down to, and that's where due diligence kind of gets them through like, uh, who's a yes, who's a no. And then when there's only so much capital. And so it almost comes down to this subjective side of their own personal assessment of risk, reward, and desire for that particular company, right? So there's like, I've, oh, I just love that product. Oh, I just, you know, I've met this guy. I've saw, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? I like his, his tenacity. And so there's a factor to it that's an emotional side that you hope that through due diligence you can get to the, the um, a level playing, you know, you kind of get to a level playing ground that at least you're choosing between A and B and both of them have the equal opportunity to succeed. And you just get to, it comes down to that. And as long as you know, and that's kind of how we always approached it in our angel group is that I would do this sort of a assessment as well that says, they may be weak on their, their team, but they made up for it in this other area. And this is a thing that can be fixed because they can add people to their team. Or they may not. We believe that the marketplace is such based on our market of competition. Um, and, you know, this is a thing. And they're focused on this, but with some coaching and assistance through the network to be able to reach these other that, you know, they could achieve this market success. You know what I mean? It's like, it is always balancing that risk reward on oh, yeah. the information that you have because we can never predict what's happening in the next 30 to 90 days as conditioned in what we're living through right now, right? Yeah, and, and, and to that point, it's even, it's even more dynamic for the, the entrepreneur too, right? So uh, I, I think I saw, I don't know if it was a, a tweet thread, but like it was different investors, venture investors, what risks are they more comfortable taking that other risks that other investors aren't right? So oh, yeah. there, may be, there may be an investor who, you know, uh, is very well versed in the FDA regulation uh, process, right? They may be more willing to take risks surrounding that than other investors, right? There sure. may be an investor who is really good at direct consumer branding style uh, customer acquisition, right? So they may be more willing to take that risk rather, you know, rather than other investors. So just because, you know, to your point, just because those risks involved, not only can other parts of the company make up for it, but the investor who's investing in you might be able to have expertise where they say, look, it's, it'd probably be an issue, but I can help you with that. And so the investor can help mitigate it, which is an interesting dynamic too, from, from the, 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 founder standpoint of you know uh, a no a, a no from someone isn't a no on your business it's they may not be the right partner for it or they're not comfortable with that particular risk find investors who who have done uh investments in consumer packaged goods before right. right or software as a service because they're comfortable with the risks that are inherent in not having any customers right or, or heavy spend at the beginning you know right right because every business model is a little bit different so, and part of a philosophy that's gaining momentum, I, I have another podcast that'll go live and uh, uh, by the time people are hearing it, it might've already been live, um, is, uh, is involving this, uh, uh, like a Wall Street approach, you call it a Wall Street analytics approach to investing in uh, the seed stage and A round of companies. 
And, uh, and the idea is that you invest a little to get them through some of those milestones. And so as you set up your, uh, your strategy as an investor, as an angel investor group, or as a fund, is that you say, you know, our criteria, you know, the, the, the criteria of due diligence is uh, not as, as deep and strong because we're going to let them prove themselves and the market prove themselves by doing. So we give them a little bit of money and then the ones that meet these other milestones that you set get the next round of money that you set aside. And then, and then so it goes from 100% to 50% to 25%. So that last round of money is a smaller, but your odds of success. So it's a different way of approaching that, that kind of, um, you know, the traditional way that so many venture funds and angel groups look at stuff that says out of 10 companies, you're going to have three that fail outright, three that do pretty good as base hits, three that do better, and then one that makes up for all the others, right? But you never know which ones it is. Well, it says, let the marketplace prove that because you're going to have this, you know, little bit that, you know, and then they prove themselves out while you're involved in coaching and giving them the resources to do that. But the market will play itself out and, and you'll get to, an overall portfolio win with yeah. that approach. So it's just a different kind of a strategy on it. And it, the due diligence piece of the beginning of it is always critical every step of the way. Right. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You're always looking at ways to mitigate the most risk with the least amount of cash. Right. So if they need a half a million dollars, but you know, with 30 grand, they can go out and, uh, you know, they can go out and market it or mitigate the most, the biggest risk that can take down the company. Well, then you want to level it, give them the 30 grand to go and mitigate that risk. And if they succeed, then you have room for the rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, yeah. You always want to push that risk at the beginning yeah. and reduce the price to mitigate it. Mm-hmm. And in different ways to structure it and thinking about it goes a long way. Yep. Okay. So as we start to to wrap up here, um, I think I, I said the name, I said the, the, the website for the VC piece of this, but why don't you just tell everybody what your, the three different websites are and who should visit each one? Yeah. So uh, we have uh, Acadian Cap is the Acadian Capital Research. That's AcadianCap.com uh, is the research arm. Um, if you are an entrepreneur or a founder and you want to look for funding, come in through that way. Um, if you are a, a uh, family office, a credit investor who has a deal that you're looking at and you want kind of an extra pair of eyes on it to help you come through that way. Uh, you know, if you're looking for a specific type of company, right. Or, or type of investment come through Acadian capital research will help you. If you want to deploy capital, um, you're, or at least look at it from a, 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 from a fund standpoint or have a firm management for you. Uh, that's where the the research firm. Uh, I'm sorry. That's where the the venture firm Acadian.bc will come in. Okay. Very great. Very good. So now it has. Now that we're many months into this pandemic, compared to the 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 network status call that the Southeast did, what have you seen? It ha- is is enthusiasm and optimism that we can pull out of this sustaining within the investor community down there? Are they um, saying, well, we can be the catalyst to pull out of this economic malaise because we can put our capital to work in certain ways. What are you seeing with the investors 
in your community as it relates to continuing on with investing in entrepreneurism and helping these companies grow? Yeah, well, I mean, we get a mix of it. So we were, we were hit with kind of like a one-two punch here in Louisiana. We had oil and gas drop. If you remember the, the Russians and the Saudis. Uh, oh, right. That was at the very beginning of this when the market collapsed. <laughs> it, it feels like years ago. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we were hit with that. And a lot of the wealth in our town, you know, is, is from uh, oil and gas, uh, you know, service companies. And, and uh, we're still very much an oil and gas town. Now, we've diversified a lot in, um, you know, healthcare and tech as well, but still a bulk of it. So we were hit with that. And then COVID came in and hit on top. Um, at the beginning, people were very apprehensive, you know, kind of holding their money back because their thought is, you know, we can go and deploy now, um, but we know that there will be opportunities in the next few months. And I'll have more information at the time of what the world's going to look like in the next few months. So kind of apprehensive and holding on to their money. From an entrepreneur standpoint, you're seeing a lot of people, uh, you know, trying to come up with different ways to solve different problems, re you know, regarding this COVID thing. Um, a lot of the innovations that were um, just very nascent are, are becoming more and more popular, right? So if you look at like telehealth, right? Um, adoption was like three to 6% whenever we looked at it, you know, like in January, December. Overnight, we woke up in 2025 and it's a 25% adoption rate, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so I, I think from an investor standpoint, they see that there are opportunities out here. And as there are less investors who are willing to, to invest risky capital into there, then the investors will get better deals, you know? And if you look back into the types of companies that were, you know, founded right after the 2008 crash, right? Eight, nine, um, you know, people have done very well. And so it's, it's a good time to be investing in companies that, um, you know, in these off markets where the supply demand balance of capital is, is flopped and, and you can really make some good deals uh, and, and you deserve to, you can afford to be picky. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, that's, that's an encouraging message there. So uh, anything else you'd like to add as we say our goodbyes here? No, this has been awesome. Thank okay, you. Okay. Very good. And I want to encourage the folks that are listening that, Again, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing, my book is the best-selling primer to teach people that are not familiar with angel investing how to get involved in angel investing, um, how to you know, decide to join a group like the um, Acadian Angel Network or decide that you want to invest in a micro venture fund like the Acadian Venture group. So, you know, you, the main goal is just to decide that you want to invest in entrepreneurs. And this book will help you figure that out. And it's, uh, a, and it becomes a DIY for, you know, folks that are new part of angel groups to be able to um, not wait for the next training or something like that. And they can get more comfortable in making their first investment in a shorter period of time. So I encourage folks to get that. And um, and after we conclude, there'll be a short uh, closing audio, if you will, that of, of our sponsors. So I hope you'll listen to that. And thank you very much, Skip, for being a part of this today. It was really informative. I'm really excited about what's going on down in Louisiana. I think you can almost be a blueprint for a whole lot of other states that 
you know, may not have felt like they could jump in on the, you know, we got a big swath of states in the mid, middle part of our nation that have not really um, embraced, you know, the, you know, we kind of sort of, right, you got the West Coast, you got the East Coast, you kind of got Texas does a lot of stuff, and then yeah. you got, you know, way up like a sort of, you know, Chicago, right, but then like everything else in between is sort of in a no man's land when it comes to entrepreneurism and investing, and so this is a great example of how every community can really do what they need to do, and as we figure out and be, get creative and how we truly pull out of this uh, economic malaise, it's going to be, I think it will be very much invest local to help bring those worthy businesses um, into a healthy space and get them through this difficult time so that they can continue to, to grow and we can all, you know, generate wealth as a result of that. Oh, yeah. And we're in our early innings too. So we got a lot of growing up to do as well. Yeah. But, uh, yes. Yeah. That's but, very you know. kind. You're starting, and uh, hopefully this will, you know, help spread the word, and uh, other angel groups themselves will want to come and syndicate and see what you got going on down here, you know? Absolutely. All right, thank you. With that, onwards and upwards, everybody. Thank you for tuning in for the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast Radio, where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed. Help us spread the word about compassionate capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools, which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lindio as a Entrepreneurs Resource Portal, providing access to dozens of lenders, offering short-term and long-term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. BizX, creating affordable advertising resources and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Cougarand Capital Holdings, is a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit karenrands.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network and our sponsors and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help you succeed.